0: Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for the chance to be with you today. It is January 24th, 2018. Just a little quick little note. We are in the middle of revamping our website. It's been a long project. Uh, the first website designer got about halfway done with the project and then just called it quits and he couldn't, couldn't finish. Uh, so we are now working with a a local team in Salt Lake City that also involves a listener of the podcast. Uh, Adam, I just want to say thank you to you and your team. Uh, we're making progress. We're probably still a month or two out, maybe maybe less. But I, I prefer to be pessimistic at this t- at this point, and uh, and we'll have a lot of conversation around those. But just know that that's uh, that's happening. Um, one thing I, I want to talk about today, and this is this is a story that just happened, and it really just kind of came to its uh, conclusion this morning in a really cool way. But I was on my drive into work this morning and I was thinking about the race and priesthood ban. And I was thinking about how, if you go and read Edward Kimball's uh, dialogue article about his father, Spencer W. Kimball, president of the church when the 1978 uh, revelation, is what we call it, when the priesthood ban is lifted. And if you read that, you realize the real humanness of church leadership. Like, we like to espouse the ideal that these men are prophets, seers, and revelators, and they talk to God in the same way that Moses, Noah, and Abraham do. But when you read the actual accounts of how these things come to be and how things work within the church, you realize it is much more human. And so you realize that President Kimball, behind the scenes, is reading uh, Lester Bush's article on the priesthood ban. And how it is based in folklore and not in any actual substantive uh, revelation. And you start to look at how these general authorities, these leaders, these apostles who for years had espoused racist rhetoric. and, And were deeply racist in their own lives. Including President Monson, by the way. And when you understand these men's lives and who they were and the culture they grew up in, and you recognize like how much information had to come into their lives for them to make a change. And when you realize how long it took and how slow of a process it was, and it was, it was an interaction here and reading something there and thinking about something here that over the course of decades, these men slowly were brought to a point where they were able to set aside their own ignorance and bigotry and prejudice and make space because also there were loud voices outside and inside, as well as a culture in the church and out that was changing and needed this to happen for the church to survive. And when you look now at this very moment today, 2018, and you look at things like the Love Loud Count concert and the churches uh, somewhat distanced, but still supportive of it. When you recognize Elder Razband uh, joining up with this uh, committee that is to start looking into Utah suicide and begin to make solutions for it. When you see the rhetoric of the church change from what caused homosexuality and how we should look at those who are homosexual from 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago to today, and you begin to see this exact same process happening where our leaders today are just now beginning to have to shed their ignorance, their bigotry, and their prejudice But this issue is so different too because if you were a black 15-year-old in 1970 and the church marginalized you and said, sorry, you can't participate fully. You still went home to your African-American family. You still went home to your black family. You still went home to people who were just like you who loved you, and who care about you. Now put yourself in the shoes of a 15-year-old kid who's coming to grips that he's gay. His family's straight. His family is orthodox in the church. He doesn't have that that, that group to go home to who says, you're accepted the way you are. We love you. Please, please. You're dealing with the same thing we're dealing with. He doesn't have that. She doesn't have that. And so I want to recognize on one hand, this issue is so similar to the issue that brought about the lifting of the race ban. And that race ban didn't end in 1978. Sure, we allowed those of color to go to the temple and to receive, and for the males to receive priesthood. But we didn't disavow directly, any of the rhetoric, we still allowed the members to walk around thinking that prior to 78, those people of color still were cursed. Those people still were less valiant in the premortal life. Like we weren't mature enough as a church, and I still don't think we are, we weren't mature enough as a church to say like, we messed up, we're sorry, we said things we should not have said. It's like the church is so scared to admit just how fallible it is. Like, yeah, we make mistakes, but don't ask us to name them specifically. And so you begin to see the church going through the same process where it's coming to terms with the fact that if it wants to stay alive, if it wants to be something in the world other than, you know, 300,000 members 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 200 years from now, that it has to change and it has to move and it has to shift and it has to find a way to honor its own scripture that all are alike unto God. And I'm listening this morning to radio West and it's the interview that uh, Doug Fabrizio, who by the way, is the best interviewer I know on this planet. And he, and he does such a phenomenal job and he's sitting down with Dan Reynolds and he's talking about the documentary believer and, and also about Tyler Glenn and neon trees and, and uh, the Love Loud cons- uh, concert and working with uh, LDS leaders and trying to get a message out to members. And I'm watching the same process happen. And as I know, too, because I get messages from people and I hear things pretty directly about conversations that go on behind the scenes with apostles of the church. And i had some of those myself, although not on this issue. And what I hear is that more and more I should say this. Let me put it this way. Recognizing that certain apostles die, and those are the older ones who hold older views generally, that the new ones come in and they're more liberal. And when you look at the top 15, there is a higher number of them today than 10 years ago who see that something's wrong and that things have to change. So privately, these men will say the right things, and indicate that they too hope for a day when drastic change happens and we can be inclusive of our LGBT brothers and sisters. But then these same leaders go out publicly and tote the party line. And I'm going to say something really strong here. But I think you lose all credibility when you are inauthentic publicly to protect the institution that you're a leader of, Meanwhile, privately, you acknowledge that the church is unhealthy to these kids and is a major contributor to their deaths at times. Like, you don't have any credibility with me. And so to the quorum of the 12 in the first presidency, for those of you who privately put your arms around the parents of LGBT members or the children themselves, and say, we love you, give us time, we're going to make this better, what I would say is publicly grow some balls. Publicly stand up. Publicly say something. Why is your system so unhealthy that you're willing to sit by and let the guys ahead of you who grew up two decades before you Why do you let them keep espousing unhealthy commentary teachings and imposing it as the will of God while you sit back mumbling underneath your breath and privately telling people we're doing something wrong? You're a special witness of Jesus Christ too. Stand up. Stand up for these kids who are taking their lives. Now, As I watch this process work itself out in the here and now, I see another major difference, which is when you look at the issue of race and priesthood, when the church made that change, the issue was such that the church could essentially not have this deep cognitive dissonance with its members, because at the end of the day, it's a church. As much as it's a part of people's lives, these people of color were, again, still able to go home to their family who were in the same situation. And so we, while I, there was definitely deep trauma, deep hurt, deep marginalization, and deep harm being caused, it doesn't show up in the statistics. The trouble with today's issue is that when the church changes, and it will, when the church changes, I don't think it can softly, subtly walk away from the deep harm and hurt it has done to the children of God who were members of this church who saw themselves as homosexual and whose church and hence whose God didn't accept them. Like, when the church changes, it's going to have to acknowledge that for over 150 years, 175 years, it formed its rhetoric, theology, teachings, doctrine, and policies around ideas and words that caused people to take their very lives And for the apostles who talk privately and say the right things, but publicly tote the party line, I think you have more blood on your hands. I think you have more. Now, my daughters, I've got a 16-year-old daughter and a 14-year-old daughter, and they are beautiful. And I love them. And my awareness of this issue happened probably six or seven years ago with homosexuality and the LGBT issues that surround this topic. And I don't know what woke me up. Let me say this. Most people wake up because they have a gay kid or a gay sibling or a gay friend or somebody they know and love and care about and respect. And conversations happen and it opens them up to saying like something's not right here. These people have just as much value as I do. And their life deserves just as much validation as mine. And I don't know how to explain it. But I didn't wake up that way. Like I've lived my life married with children. And I serve in the church. And and I serve as a bishop. I just don't have that person in my life who's gay Who's, who's transgender, who's intersex, that I knew about, right? There may have been, I didn't know about, I don't know what woke me up. To each of you who are listening, I don't know what woke me up. But, but I know kind of the moment it happened, and it happens in my very first interview. If you want to go back to Mormon stories, in the very, very first interview I did uh, there, I've done three of them, so you have to go back. I did it as a sitting bishop. This had to have been around 2012, And I'm sitting down and I'm doing this interview in my living room, talking to John DeLynn. And I give him kind of the things I want to talk about. But he goes off into two areas that I wasn't planning on, which was how do I as a bishop handle the sexuality of youth who come in and talk to me with things like masturbation. And then the other thing he asked about was how I reconciled the LGBT issue. And I remember John asking me the question, but Bill... What if your stake president told you that you could no longer have a relationship with your wife or any female for that matter? You can't hold hands. You can't kiss. You can't have a relationship. Like, would you be able to do that? And if you go back and listen to that interview, at that very moment in my head, inside my head, I knew I couldn't hold that ground. I knew that John had made an incredible point and had connected something in my head, where I said like I couldn't do that in my head. I said that, but to the to the microphone, I tried to I tried to uh, deflect, I tried to dismiss the question, I tried to reword it. But he held my feet to the fire. And for weeks after that interview, I'm sitting here and struggling with like he's right, I wouldn't do that even if I'm absolutely certain because angels had come down and told me that the church was true, even with that, I wouldn't choose to live a life alone. I wouldn't choose to honor that God who asked me to do that. Like, sorry, but I'm not going to do that. And all of a sudden, like this entire, like something gave way within me. And something like deep down that i always knew comes to the surface and now gives me permission to express it which is that all of god's children deserve honor and validation all of god's children pick like they don't choose whether they're attracted to men or women look at the animal kingdom like homosexuality shows up yes it's a minority but we treat it like a plague when it's normal It's as normal as being left-handed is normal. Like we could mock all the people who are left-handed and say, well, right-handed occurs 93% of the time. Right-handed is the way you're supposed to be. Anybody who's left-handed, like stop being left-handed. Like you can be left-handed. Just don't choose to act with your left hand. Don't write with your left hand. Don't dribble a basketball with your left hand. Don't throw a baseball with your left hand. But that's silly. Being homosexual is normal. And I'm at Sunstone two years ago and I'm there with Kimberly Anderson. Kimberly, if you're listening, I love you and appreciate you and and think the world of you. And I'm at Sunstone with Kimberly and Kimberly's sitting with me at lunch and and she's with our group and we've got a good group of friends and she knows all of us. And, and we're talking and on the way back in after lunch, we're heading back into Sunstone to go into another session. And Kimberly says, Bill, I just want to say thank you. I want to say thank you for the work you do to bring awareness to this issue and to talk about it. And I had to stop Kimberly in her tracks because, because she doesn't understand this point. I hope she does now. And I hope each of you will grasp this. To, to the listeners of Mormon Discussion, you wouldn't understand this by listening because I'm such an advocate for this issue. But I'm an advocate for this issue because I'm homophobic. Because my culture has taught me to see these people as less than, my brain still can't 100% get past that. And so, in the back of my head, when someone who's gay talks to me, when someone who's transgender talks to me, there's still a piece of my brain that is homophobic or transgenderphobic. Because that's what my culture taught me. That's what I learned in school. And that's what my church taught me. That's what my in-laws taught me. That's what my family taught me. That's what my brother and my mom and my dad taught me. And so there's a piece of it still there. And so I am an advocate for these folks. Because I want to protect them from people like me. Let that sink in for a moment. And I hope as I give this episode, I hope people will look inside their own brain and go, yeah, there's a piece of me still that sees these people as less than. Now, when I woke up in 2012, thank goodness, we're six years ago, my 16-year-old was 10 My 14-year-old was eight. Since that moment, my two girls have come to me and expressed to me that they think they might be bisexual. Thank God. I was in a place where I could honor and validate that that was okay. And darn it, they're smart girls. They probably would have perceived that I wasn't and they wouldn't have shared it. Like so many kids don't. But my kids perceived that their mother and their father were safe to talk to. Even though they didn't understand the full extent of mom and dad's faith transition and where we were, they at least had a hunch that we were safe to talk to. So my kids expressed to me the possibility that they were bisexual. Now, when did this happen? This happened after the November 2015 policy. And again, my kids saw me struggle with that event happening. They didn't know the extent of it. But they saw that something about dad and mom isn't comfortable with this thing that seems to teach hatred and shame and marginalization towards those of the LGBT community. And luckily, I was in a place where I was able to respond to my two daughters with love and honor and validation. And again, please hear me. There's a piece of me that's still homophobic. But luckily, I've woke up to that. And again, I want to protect every man, woman, and child from people like me. My wife comes to me two days ago and says, I want to tell you what happened with your daughter at school. The school passed around a paper for some activity that was happening. I don't know what it was, if it was a dance or some get together an evening for a movie night at the school or what it was. But this paper suggested that every boy pick out a girl that he likes. And every girl pick out a boy that she likes and to invite them to this activity. Now, my 14-year-old daughter struggles with a lot of things. For those who are closest to me, you know what I'm talking about. I've been scared to death over this 14-year-old girl because of the things that she's expressed and the trauma that she's experienced in her life. And this 14-year-old girl sits at a lunch table with other kids who also have something other than uh, a heterosexual sexuality. These kids find each other. These kids are the only support that each other have. And these kids sit at a lunch table. And in this group, they have a conversation. My daughter's there. She's eating lunch. She's talking with them. And they're talking about this paper that gets passed around and how much it hurt them. How much it hurt them that their school administration excludes them, doesn't even think to include them, doesn't even realize they exist and how troubled they are by it. And so one of the kids suggests that they go in and talk to the principal and the kids say, no way, no way can we do that. We're scared to death to do that. No way. There's not a chance we're going to do it. My The kids say, like, my parents don't even know that I'm gay. My parents don't even know that I'm bisexual. My 14-year-old says, I'll go. I'll talk to him. And the kids are like, seriously, you'll do it? She's like, absolutely. So my 14-year-old, with all the courage that a 14-year-old can have, goes into the principal's office and sits down with the principal and says, this isn't okay. This is what you did. This is what happened. This is what was allowed. And this is why it is wrong. Now, this principal says the right things. He doesn't dismiss my daughter. At least as far as I know, he uses language and rhetoric and words and tone and emotion that implies that he's grateful that my daughter took the opportunity to talk to him and to bring this to his attention. My daughter leaves the room. The principal then calls my wife. I think he assumes that we don't know that my daughter is likely in something other than a a heterosexual sexuality that we're unaware of it. And so he, he decides to have this conversation with us about what my daughter just went into him and talked about. My wife thanked him for having an open-door policy. My wife thanked him for being kind and respectful in the way that he handled the situation. And my daughter walks away feeling like she did something really big. And I absolutely think that she did. Fast forward to this morning. We just got done closing on a house. We're going to be moving here within the next month. We've got some work to do on it, and we're, we're going to move in, obviously, and things are kind of hectic, and so I haven't been home the last two nights because of trying to work out things with, with floor covering and painting and all the stuff that goes into when you buy a house that needs some work done. And my daughter comes in this morning, and it's the first chance her and I have had to have a conversation, and she kneels down next to my bed. I'm still in bed. My kids are getting ready for school. And uh, my daughter says, did, did mom tell you what happened the other day? And I said, yes, I'm so proud of you, Natalie. I said, that must have taken some courage. I said, give me a big hug. And she gives me a big hug. And I said, tell me about that. She goes, the other kids at the table, dad, they were too scared. They were too scared, dad, that their parents, their parents don't even know they're gay. Their parents don't even know they're bisexual. And then my daughter chuckles as she says something like, I'm not straight. And I said, how were you able to do that? You must have been really nervous. And she said, no, not really. And I said, what do you mean not really? Why weren't you nervous? She said, because I know that you and mom love me for who I am. And my immediate thought is all these other kids who are keeping this a secret because they don't know if their parents will love them once they share their secret. These kids don't know if their parents will stand by them. And some of them, damn it, they won't. Some of their parents won't stand by them some of their parents, when having to choose between their religion, which is a minority, high-demand, fundamentalist religion, these parents will choose their faith over their kids. And when I see the rhetoric of people like Elder Oaks, who in the past has said as much about if one of his children were gay, and when I hear his rhetoric Around LGBT issues and homosexuality. When I hear what Elder Bednar says that there are no homosexuals in the church, when I hear these people double down on the proclamation, and I hear President Nelson who doubled down on the November 2015 policy, and then I realize all the parents who, in their culture, in the Mormonism they were raised with, in the Mormonism they are reinforced with every Sunday. Some of these parents will not accept their children, and Mormonism has taught them that. And these kids are scared to death to tell anyone. Recently, my older daughter had a kid in our home. He's He claims to be bisexual, which is fine. My hunch is that he's gay, and being bisexual is a softer way to be more open about the messiness of one's sexuality not fitting the cultural norm. And he's at our house and he's spending time with our family and we're watching some television and everybody goes off and does something for a moment and it's just him and my wife. And my wife looks over at him and taps him on his knee and looks him right in the eyes and says, I see you. I see you. To the listeners of Mormon Discussion Podcast, I know some of you feel like this is an issue that over the course of the five, six, seven years we've been doing this, that this is an issue I talk too much about. But let me tell you, this issue is personal to me for a hundred reasons. A few of which we've talked about today. It's my hope, it's my sincere prayer that Mormonism, again, I'm begging, be vulnerable, own up to your fallibility, own up to your mistakes. You're right, people are going to lose faith in the church if the leaders of the church tell it like it really is in terms of how fallible they really are and have been. But it's still the right thing to do. For the general authorities who say one thing privately and another thing publicly, stand up. Speak out. You do more damage by your double message and you lose all credibility with us on the margins who see it happening. You are not trustworthy. If you cannot be trusted to stand up for these kids and for this issue publicly like you do privately, To the kids out there who are LGBT, please know you have a friend in me. You're welcome to email me, message me, call me, come to my home. You can go to church with me. I will go to church with you. Recently, I've had the blessing of having two lesbians in a relationship become really good friends of mine. Ten years ago, I wouldn't have been their friend. Ten years ago, I would have judged them, marginalized them, and kept my distance from them. Today, I see them as beautiful and as two of the best humans I've ever gotten to know on this planet. To the listeners of this podcast, to the members of this church, to the leaders of this church, and to people generally, to human beings, we can treat each other better. We can stop putting walls and defenses and moats around our comfortable beliefs and we can open ourselves up to questioning and asking, is this okay? Is this really the way God is? Is this really the way God treats others? And is God okay with this? We can do better. We can stand up. We can be a voice and we can dissent when we see harm being done to the children of God. This has nothing to do with Bill Real or Mormon Discussion Podcast, but come hell or high water. Our approach is going to change. In fact, it is changing. a Voice. I think I lost myself in your new religion. You say I pray for me like a superstition We were always made for love We could always speak in tongues On my knees and I'm seeing visions Yeah, you remind me that seven sins are deadly You used to baptize me